This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. This is Chiaki Santiago with Stories of Win, and today I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Marlene Cohen, who is a professor in the Department of Neuroscience at the University of Pittsburgh and the Associate Director of the Center for Neural Bases of Cognition. Thanks for letting me interview Marlene. Thanks to you. This is uh, probably one of the hardest times in history to be a graduate student, and you're doing something <laughs> that's a huge service to our community, so I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So we like to ask this question during the beginning of our interviews, what is your brain origin story, you know, or in other words, how did you become interested in studying the brain? You know, I have two kids and they know all about the origin stories of all these superheroes. So I was thinking that I should probably come up with something that is more exciting than the truth. Like my home planet was about to explode and my parents tried to save me by putting me next to a radioactive brain. Um, the truth is not that interesting. Uh, I, as an undergraduate, was a math major and I needed a job. And I started looking into the possibility of doing some research. Um, in math, it can be hard for undergraduates to find research positions. It just takes a while to know enough to be useful. Um, and I was lucky enough to go to a lecture by Matt Wilson, um, who studies things very similar to what you work on, uh, studies the hippocampus and the neural basis of, of spatial navigation um, more broadly. And he gave this super cool lecture where he impersonated a place cell in the hippocampus. So he walked around the room and was telling us that these are neurons that fire when you're in a familiar environment, they fire in, in a specific place in that environment. So he walked around the room and was quiet, except for when he walked by you know, one corner and would go impersonate that cell firing and walked away. And I was just really smitten by this idea that there are these neurons that encode something really relevant to behavior. And that is something that really has driven my uh, questions in this field ever since then. So um, I went after that and begged Matt for a position in his lab. And for some reason, out of the goodness of his heart, he agreed, even though I knew nothing useful. Um, and I started out doing things like training rats to run back and forth on a linear maze uh, for um, in Boston, they call them jimmies for chocolate sprinkles as rewards. <laughs> and uh, and very, very, very gradually started learning things and reading more and hopefully being a tiny bit more useful in the lab. But that, that early experience just, I was really smitten with the idea of understanding how it is that the activity of these neurons gives rise to our internal experiences and behaviors. What a fun lecture, honestly. <laughs> it was awesome. And I've heard him do it before, and it's uh, it's great. I think that if he just traveled the country doing that, we'd have a lot more neuroscientists. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely. So, yeah, how did, you know, with your experience in undergrad, how did that kind of lead into you applying and then going into graduate school? What, what was that spark and transition? Yeah, so it was a slow process. Um, I had no idea whether a neuroscience program would, would take uh, somebody who was a math major. And, and um, I started to add 
more neuroscience classes as I got more excited about work in the lab. Um, one of those was a small class taught by Nancy Canwisher, who uh, studies vision and cognition in humans. And uh, now as a faculty member, I cannot believe that she found the time to put this class together, but um, <laughs> it was a small group of us and we got to, we did a bunch of reading of primary literature and we um, designed an fMRI experiment, which she and her lab members conducted, and we got to, you know, be there and sort of help. Um, and we got to sort of analyze the data. And that was just so cool. And um, so between talking to her and talking to Matt, and uh, I just was really excited about a lot of aspects of neuroscience research. So I applied and for some reason I got into some. Um, I have to say that especially now looking at graduate student applications from the other <laughs> side, I, I am in awe of what all of these people can do and have done. I was not that, but I was super curious and very lucky. And so I ended up um, going to Stanford and working with Bill Newsom, whose interests are in certain ways uh, kind of in between Nancy's and Matt's. Um, he studies the neural basis of vision um, and visual cognition, sort of like Nancy does, uh, but at the using physiology like Matt does. So again, linking neurons to behavior. Wow, I that's really exciting. See, I I want these classes <laughs> where you get to run an fMRI experiment and you know have a person walk around the room. <laughs> right, I know it's pretty amazing, and and um, you know I really love interacting with students now as a teacher. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like all human beings, there are days when my to-do list is super long and it is very tempting to not put in that kind of effort. And I, but I am so grateful to my instructors and I know how big a difference it made, it made for me. So. Definitely, definitely. I had a similar experience where I was uh, in, in college and they brought a barn owl into class. And I think that was, that was my, that was my ticket to understanding neurobiology. It was trying to understand this owl. So I, I definitely resonate in saying that those experiences are so important, you know, in our undergraduate and later careers. So <laughs> it's awesome. So, you know, going into, going to Stanford and, and um, how is, how was then, you know, creating your thesis project and, and what were some of the things that you were studying in, in graduate school? Yeah, so I was a fish out of water when I first got there. I remember the first quarter, um, all of the first year students took a clinical neuroscience class, uh, which especially at that time, but maybe still is, is very molecular. And I hadn't taken a uh, biology class since my senior year of high school. <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe junior year of high school. So um, I sat there in that class and I made lists of all the words that I didn't understand. And then I would ask my <gasps> classmates about them later. So um, it was definitely not the uh, most natural transition. Um, but one of the wonderful things about Bill's lab was both that he is a very broad thinker and somebody who is full of scientific questions. And he... Uh, at the time and maybe throughout his his career had a group of people in the lab who were also really dynamic and and um terrific to learn from so i started working with the postdoc in the lab a little bit and i um and also just learned as much as i and as well as a more senior graduate student and learned as much as i could um 
I found myself really interested in questions about how we could use, how our brains could use the same input, in our case, visual information, to make different decisions in different contexts. So like if I um, see a, a chocolate chip cookie on the counter in my kitchen, I might eat it. But if I saw the same chocolate chip cookie in a grocery store, I'd like to think that I would first take it and pay for it before I ate it. Right. So, <laughs> so we are we are very flexible in the way that we use sensory information. We know that there can't be a fixed mapping from vision to action. And so I was interested in that flexibility. And so we designed a project that uh, would ask those questions and also used a little bit of the things that I knew how to do, like uh, some of the more uh, quantitative aspects and, and uh, computational work too. That's interesting. So would you be changing their context as well? So like in studying this, designing experiments where, you know, maybe like a subject would have um, a kitchen versus a grocery store and then understanding like this is a different context of therefore I need to switch my decision or is it more... Like, are there salient cues that cause this transition or, you know, is it only rewarding cues? And that's really interesting. Yeah. So I would say at the time when I was a graduate student, there was a, there were two very distinct approaches. Um, people would either study these sort of things using very artificial stimuli. So in our case, it was these random dot motion uh, stimuli that you could quantify and parameterize really precisely so we could control absolutely everything on that computer screen. Mm -hmm. And what I did was have subjects either, um, so it was a noisy stimulus that was hard to figure out what direction it was moving. And I either on some trials asked them, was it more up or more down? And on other trials, was it more left or more right? So in that context, it was at make a different decision from the same sensory information. Um, the other approach was to do things in a much more naturalistic way, kind of like you described. So say, hey, we're in a grocery store now, we're in a, we're in a kitchen. Um, and the challenge with that is that you have a lot less control. And one of the really exciting ways that I think our field has moved in the time since, and, and my lab has moved in the time since, is... Uh, bringing those two approaches together. So uh, there are people a lot more talented than me who have designed really wonderful um, programs that can make naturalistic scenes and environments, uh, but still that we can parameterize and control. And so we can place subjects in a realistic environment where you feel like you're in a grocery store or you feel like you're in a kitchen, um, but we can control the aspects of the visual scene or what happens in a way that we can make really rigorous conclusions. Oh, wow. That's awesome. So then what was the transition or the decision that the, made you kind of go from your graduate work then to, to postdoctoral research? Did, were you looking to do a postdoc? You know, how was that transition for you? Because I know like a lot of graduate students even still are, you know, trying to understand how they can transition from graduate work to postdoc work. So I, at every transition point in my career, uh, when it, whether it was choosing a major as an undergrad or deciding to go to grad school, <laughs> deciding to do a postdoc or, or a faculty position, 
I thought about other stuff. And I think that's something we don't talk a lot about, but I think it's really healthy and maybe necessary, right? Um, yeah. It can feel like there is a standard path that you should take, but if you look at the numbers, there is not a standard path, right? And so um, I think it's really smart and maybe even the only responsible thing to do to get a sense of what your options are. And so... Uh, Yeah, toward the end of my graduate work, I remember very clearly actually having a meeting with uh, Bill Newsom, who was my graduate advisor, where we were talking about how, you know, the end was in sight, there was light at the end of the tunnel, and maybe I should start (laughs) to think about what comes next. And I got back to my desk after that and checked my email and saw an email that was sent to our our student mailing list that there was an opening for a postdoc studying dolphin cognition in Hawaii. And I was like, oh my gosh, the university is speaking to me. Um, I did not do that. And turns out actually after watching what that facility went through that it was probably the right decision, but boy, that was tempting. So um, I thought about that. Uh, In all seriousness, I, I looked around pretty broadly um I looked in industry I looked I even I went to this uh, information session about consulting jobs and I think that is terrific for a lot of people not for me but they had really really good chocolate mousse I will never forget that chocolate mousse it was like so that was a worthwhile <laughs> investigation um and then once I I think for me and and everyone's different but for me the draw of this kind of work is that there's a tremendous amount of intellectual freedom right? I get to work on stuff that I think is cool and I'm judged on whether my work is interesting and important and and that kind of freedom that's a real gift and a real privilege and of course as a student or postdoc, you have to convince somebody to hire you to do that stuff. As a faculty member, you have to convince somebody to pay for it. So it's not, you know, completely open loop, but, uh, but there's a lot of freedom. And so for me, that's always been a big draw and I just really like what I'm doing. And I think that a lot of students rightly think about what their long-term career prospects are. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's smart. And obviously everyone's first responsibility is to take care of themselves and their families and their personal lives, whatever that means to you. But also you only need one job, right? And so I think mm-hmm. I viewed it that I was going to keep trying to do this until I couldn't anymore. And, and what that means is different for, for different people. Um, Definitely. But then, yeah, once I once I decided I wanted to do a postdoc, I looked pretty broadly within that as well, uh, thinking about different scientific directions. Um, and so ultimately, I still was really uh, in love with this idea of looking at the neural basis of behavior. Um, the big thing in my graduate work was at the time, the way that the neural basis of flexible behavior was mostly studied was by looking at one neuron at a time and looking at, for example, when you're in the kitchen versus the grocery store, do do your individual neurons respond differently? And the answer is they do, uh, but it's pretty hard to make sense of that. And 
the big innovation that I did in my graduate career was instead of recording from one electrode at a time, I glued two together and I recorded <laughs> from two at a time. Uh, and um, and I should say, actually, the inspiration for those ideas also came from Matt Wilson's lab. Uh, he was really a pioneer in thinking about the neural activity as a population, as an ensemble. And so even though I have ended up you know, looking at different brain areas and different behaviors and different uh, aspects of neural population activity, I think he planted that seed of that idea, which is a really profound one. And I think that what my thesis work showed was that the biggest thing that happens when you're in a different context or making a different kind of decision is that the way that neurons um, interact with each other changes. So that's what we found from two neurons. And so um, the thing that I wanted uh, for my postdoctoral work was to learn to record from lots of neurons and um, also to develop a behavioral framework where we could make really precise predictions about what should change. And so um, I went to John Mansell's lab to do that. He studies many, many things, but in part as a neural basis of attention. And I was really excited about this because attention is this thing that your brain can do that makes you see better. So when you pay attention to something, either location or an object or something like that, you see it better. And uh, we hoped that we could learn um, what was important about neural activity or neural population activity as a whole by asking what of the things that change in the brain when you pay attention to something would enable that better behavior, better vision. And so John again, was very, was extremely generous taking me on. Um, The first thing I did when I got to his lab was spend a tremendous amount of money buying this new system for recording from a bunch of neurons. And he uh, was very generous in all different ways, giving me the freedom to make a lot of mistakes and get that working. But uh, that has also been something really foundational for my career and an approach that my lab uses. Amazing, amazing. So going into like your postdoc and and getting excited about recording from populations of neurons, what is the finding of your postdoctoral research that you had and and why was that important and how did that launch into into your uh, faculty position? I think that what we found is that in conditions when you're seeing really well, either because you're paying attention to a location or a feature or some other thing, Uh, the neurons that encode that thing that you're seeing really well, their noise becomes more independent. And so what that means is that there's a lot of co-fluctuations of activity in the brain. uh, And I call it noise as shorthand, but it just means things that we don't understand. Maybe it's internal states that are fluctuating, uh, you know, your, your thoughts and ideas or mind wandering, all these things. But when you're focusing on something and you see it really well, that um, variability becomes more independent. And that was an observation that uh, opened up a lot more questions than answers. And I really had all these ideas about information coding and how that would make those neurons more able to encode lots more uh, visual information. I now think that those ideas are wrong or at least mostly wrong. Um, Mm. But I think that making those measurements, trying to link uh, 
aspects of population activity to different aspects of behavior really shaped a lot of the work of my lab. And I think that the field is going in that direction a lot as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amazing, amazing. What would you say, I, this is kind of a hard question, but, you know, and maybe this is in, in multiple prongs and that's completely fine, but, you know, what is the main question of your lab then? You know, what um, what aspects are you trying to study? What what new questions maybe you're excited about as well? I'm I'm curious to hear. Yeah. So I think very broadly, the theme has has not changed so much, which is that we're trying to understand the neural population basis of flexible behavior. And just about everything in the lab circles around that theme. But one one thing that's been really fun, so I've had my own lab for, I guess, about 10 and a half years now. And in the first couple of years, we did projects that, um, you know, I proposed in my research statement. They were natural extensions Mm -hmm. of ideas that came out of my previous work. um, And that was great. And somehow since then we've expanded in lots of new directions that I never would have predicted. It's it's definitely stayed with that same theme, um, but we have been exploring more naturalistic behaviors. We have started branching um, into using a, a number of different approaches, both computational and modeling approaches, but also uh, using humans and animal models. We've been doing more translational work recently, uh, studying the drugs that are used to treat disorders of attention and trying to understand what those do to populations of neurons. We're beginning a collaboration uh, to um, start, try to understand whether uh, to test a hypothesis that changes in vision and visual cognition might be some of the earliest changes in Alzheimer's disease and looking to those for both early diagnosis and treatment. So lots of different directions, but yeah. uh, circling around the common theme. And my lab is full of wonderful people who come from a variety of, of intellectual backgrounds. We have you know people who are uh, neuroscience majors, but also people who have a background in math and physics and engineering and art history and animal behavior and things. <laughs> and, and that's super fun because they come with their own ideas and their own way of looking at problems. And yet it's, uh, we, I'm just so lucky that this group of people works so well as a team. And so I feel like all of the, every project has benefited from that, that range of backgrounds. Nice. Nice. Are there, any new directions that you think you're excited about or, you know, mostly, I mean, those projects sound amazing and, and really exciting for, for the lab, honestly. <laughs> yeah. I think that the thing, the thing that's in my head right now, uh, the most is that, um, in our field, we talk a lot about translational work, but mm-hmm. I think that, uh, there could be a lot learned from, um, merging basic science and clinical approaches. And so I think in, in basic yeah. science, we have these hypotheses and we we learn a lot about specific systems and specific neural computations. And, and we all write our three sentence description on our grants about how someday this could be um, 
useful. But uh, then clinical work is is focused rightly on treating people right now. And mm-hmm. I think that the I think those two approaches and those two questions can can really inform and enhance each other. And so uh, we definitely come from a basic science bent, uh, but starting to branch out in these translational directions. And I think that, you know, even the uh, more applied work can inform basic science hypotheses. So for example, um, a hypothesis that came out of some work that my really terrific postdoc named Amy Nee did was that uh, cognitive processes or any manipulation should improve vision, at least in her specific visual task, exactly when it changes this correlated variability, this shared noise in the brain. And so she, instead of a cognitive manipulation, she gave these drugs that are used to treat disorders of attention. And lo and behold, that was a causal manipulation that ended up changing correlative variability and also behavior in ways that were really tightly linked. So she learned something about the, what those drugs do to neural populations. And we hope that that will have translational implications, but also she was able to test her basic science neural coding hypothesis using those drugs as a causal manipulation. So I'm pretty excited about combining approaches in that way. Definitely. Definitely. And I, I appreciate that description that there's a difference between like the the ideas and the goals of basic science versus pharmaceuticals or clinical labs and trying to figure out how, you know, what can we fix now for, for, for people. And if we don't combine like some sort of academic science to like a lot of translational work or, you know, of course there are a lot of translational labs out there, but if there's not this combination between, you know, how can we help people now versus, you know, what do we have? Then I don't know that we're making the exact findings that we need to, but I think, yeah, that was, that's awesome. And I, I'm excited to hear about that work. (laughs) Well, that was really well said. And I think it's also worth saying that it's important, but it's also hard. And you know, we all have a lot to do, right? Your graduate program presumably is mostly focused on basic science. And it's not like you're sitting around doing nothing. That's a really hard thing to master. To to, uh, master the clinical parts too is hard. And so I think that creating ways for people with different backgrounds to interact a lot is, is a really important way forward. Definitely, definitely. Which and it's a really exciting one too. I think the combination is like crucial. And so I'm a person that works in mice. I have been working in mice and since oh gosh, I think it's like five to six years now, which is weird to say. But you know, from that perspective, it's really hard to make, you know, translational models that a lot of people agree with. And and it's really highly debated that, you know, are there schizophrenic mice? Are there mice that can be depressed? You know, and these questions always come up. And you want to find things that can be tangential. Maybe you can recreate a symptom and maybe alleviate that symptom with a specific type of drug. But, you know, the experience is going to be completely different. So it's about taking these ideas and maybe these preclinical ideas and hopefully, you know, putting them into a, a clinical setting so that they can really be understood. So, yeah, no, I definitely I definitely um agree with that, you know, and resonate with a lot with what you're saying and, and something that I was really interested in, in my undergrad work and, and hope to continue later as well. <laughs> totally. Well, good. We need more people like you then. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So, you know, 
I, you know, the direction of your lab sounds really amazing. And it sounds like, you know, we've really enjoyed it. So I'm curious, like, how was living in Pittsburgh for the last, you know, you said you've had your lab for 10 and a half years now. What was, what was it like transitioning into University of Pittsburgh and, 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 uh, and living in the city? You know, a, a lot of people have asked me that question. Um, I came here when I was pregnant with my first child and I went from uh, living in a one-bedroom apartment with my husband in Boston to moving to Pittsburgh and starting a lab and buying a house and having a kid like all within the first few months and so <laughs> absolutely every aspect of my life changed when we moved here so I don't know how to compare it to anything else. Um, <laughs> I will say that I've had a great experience here. Uh, the The city of Pittsburgh has a tremendous neuroscience community that is both broad and deep. And it's people who are really good and ambitious scientists, but also really good people. And that's a, a wonderful community to be a part of, maybe especially when you are starting your own lab. Um, so I, uh, yeah, it's been a great experience. The city of Pittsburgh is a really good place to live, a good place to have a family. I grew up in California, so it's all very cold, especially today in January. But it's, um, but I bought a bigger coat every year that I've lived here, and now, now I think I got it. <laughs> yeah, the the coat, you know, thickness ratio, you, know, you gotta gotta get that down. Exactly. <laughs> No, that's awesome. So um, I know you mentioned this before, but, you know, I'm I'm excited to hear that you're transitioning to the University of Chicago and and it's a really great opportunity. Like, are you excited to continue your work there? I know you said you're, you're moving there sometime in June. I just yeah, I'd love to hear about, you know, things that you're excited for for your new university. Yeah, so I just told you that I get cold a lot, so I decided to move to Chicago. But I, uh, I, um, yes, as I said, I've had a really great experience here, uh, but also really excited for something new. I think that um, there, especially maybe coming off of a pandemic when we've all been a little bit isolated, the idea of having a, a new and vibrant community of people to talk to and get ideas from. I know that here I... I've learned a lot about things that I wasn't necessarily even seeking out just by talking to people about what they do and what they think about. Um, the University of Chicago has a really uh, growing and dynamic community of both neuroscientists, but also a lot of related fields. They just announced this big data science initiative. They have real strength oh. in psychology and biology and also clinical work. And so, um, yeah, I'm excited to be a part of a growing community there. Um, there, there are some, I'm gonna have some resources and space and things there to expand the lab in, in certain directions like these translational ones that I am really excited about. So um, yeah, I think maybe all of us after, hopefully after, but or during this, this pandemic period, maybe are itching for something new to get excited about. And uh, so I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, that's really exciting. Oh, amazing, amazing. Um, so, you know, at the kind of end of our interviews, we like to, to um, ask two questions. The first is talking about challenges of your career. What is the challenge that you faced, you know, while on your path to your current career? Were there things along the way that have, that have been hard to transition into and to stay in academia and and feel free to you know pick either kind of portion but just out of curiosity you know what are some of the challenges that you've had in in becoming a professor 
Yeah, you you warned me you were going to ask that question. And um, as like anyone, there are a bunch of directions I could go. But the thing I was thinking about is exactly as you said, you know, what are the things that I as a high school student or college student thinking about this would have wanted to hear about? And one of the ones is that I think is much more common than people realize and maybe more common to uh, for women and people from other groups that are historically underrepresented in science is that I felt like my personality was just different than a real scientist would be. Mm. And, um, you know, I was, so I started out as a math major and I've always loved math and, and done reasonably well at it. But there were all these people around me who were very quick and you know you would shoot questions at them and they were like right on it and I'm definitely more of a tortoise than a hare in my thinking I will I will have some good idea in three weeks and call you back about it um and throughout uh throughout my uh, career in science I've encountered a lot of people, but maybe the ones that attract attention are the ones whose personalities fill the room. And while there were a lot of people that were uh, terrific role models for me in many, many ways, I found it harder to find people that had personalities that seemed, you know, made their way through science in a way that seemed like something that I could reasonably pull off. And in particular, one of those ways was that uh, early on when I was a graduate student trying to find a project, I got advice from a really well-meaning postdoc who said, that you should pick a project that is so cool that you can't stop thinking about it. And that that's all you want to think about when you're in the shower. And I've never felt that way about anything. I've always been somebody who thinks about all sorts of stuff and has lots of other interests. You know, music has always been a big part of my life. And um, I love to hike and swim and be outside and all these things. And, you know, of course, now I have kids that, that occupy a lot of my thoughts and ideas. And I, that's just always have been. And there's not a single job in this universe that would be so cool that that's all I want to think about. And I think it's okay. And I actually think that uh, in certain ways, that's been a strength. And I used to early in my career feel like I always should be either working or feeling guilty about not working. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, in a weird way, you know, everybody asks how, how do you keep going as a scientist after you've had kids? But I think that in some ways, um, having kids really helped me because there was this time that there's somewhere more important for me to be. And I really think that my best scientific ideas have come when I'm not working or feeling guilty about working, you know, mm -hmm. rocking a baby to sleep. I have good thoughts or, uh, or I think that's a good reason to make time for exercise or music or whatever it is that, that unwinds you because, you know, when I'm swimming or hiking, I, my mind is a little more free and that's where my ideas come. Not when I'm sitting in front of my computer necessarily. And so, um, yeah, so I've, I, I've also heard the advice you should, not do science unless it's the only thing that would make you happy. But I really hope it's not the only thing that would make anyone happy because life is crazy and you never know which directions you're going to go. Anyway, all this to say is that I, I am not, I never will be a person who is hyper-focused on any one thing. I never will be somebody who fills the room in the, in the way that some of the bigger characters in our field do. Um, 
And I've never had success pretending to be those things. Um, And so, you know, any success that I've had has been just sort of finding a way to do it my way. And so maybe my advice is that people should seek out role models, not just scientific ones. You obviously need to be surrounded by people that share your your scientific interests and things like that, Mm -hmm. but also just people who have lives that kind of look like the life you might want and sort of Mm -hmm. see how they do it. And those don't have to be the same people. Definitely. Amazing. Amazing. No, thank you for that. And I think, you know, a lot of listeners will appreciate that, especially, you know, I resonated a lot with, um, you feel guilty. Like you need to do science like all hours of the day as if, you know, you can't have any other interests. And I think um, kind of expanding that thought and saying, no, really, you were allowed to have those things. And, and maybe that makes you a better scientist and then probably does. So, you know, I, I really appreciate that. That's awesome. <laughs> all right. Well, to, to uh, end our interview, we usually ask uh, interviews, you know, what do you do for fun outside of the lab, outside of science? I know you need a couple already, but, you know, what are some fun things that you do to de-stress away from science and, and um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, I you know, earlier in my adulthood, I, I spent a lot of time doing sort of organized things, playing in music groups and things like that. Out of curiosity, what is the, you know, what musical groups do you participate in? Are you playing an instrument or? Yeah. So I play woodwinds, uh, flute and clarinet and saxophone. Um, done, oh, wow. I've done a bunch of, uh, classical and and also some jazz and things like this um these days the truth is that I mostly play in my basement uh I am trying to <laughs> grow my own band um I have actually a really musical lab and we should we should do that more when pandemic eases up but I uh I my older son plays uh drums and other percussion and my younger son just started playing piano so I'm trying to grow the old, my own band in the basement we will see <laughs> but that's been a really fun thing to uh to share with my kids a little bit um amazing yeah. and then I also have always felt most relaxed when I'm outside and so Mm -hmm. that's something that luckily has been fairly uh easy to do during the pandemic we've done a lot of local hikes and uh I when possible love to you know do things like kayaking and being in the water I like to swim um so yeah, those are my, those are my things. And then just playing with the kids. And, you know, I've learned over the years a lot about trains and dinosaurs and superheroes <laughs> that I never learned before. And uh, maybe it would be interesting to uh, someday understand what it is that um, got pushed out of my brain when I learned a dinosaur whose name starts with every letter of the alphabet. I don't really know, but, uh, but it, it is one of the wonderful things about kids is wonder watching their interests uh, evolve and, and trying to learn a little bit along with them yeah that's amazing oh that sounds awesome and yeah it's really like it's really gorgeous in Pittsburgh so I'm, I'm currently here and and uh, yeah there's so many like great major places and and even like seeing the different architecture here is fantastic so that's that's awesome that you're able to get out in the city all right awesome awesome well I just wanted to thank you for interviewing with us and we really appreciate you you interviewing with us and being on our podcast and and this will this is awesome thank you so much thanks to you and thank you all for putting this together it's a it's a really this podcast is a really terrific thing for our community so I'm honored to be a part of it